again, let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your wonderful word. We pray for your help now as we look at it together. Your spirit will be at work in us. Help us to understand, help us to grasp these truths and what it means for our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to talk about suffering. And I want to tread really carefully on this subject because um, I'm just aware that as a church family, I think we are going through a season of suffering. Just from uh, various conversations I've had with people. And I know that some people are suffering, maybe even right now, in unimaginable ways. And so I want to tread carefully. I know this isn't an academic subject at all, and it's certainly not a theological football to kind of kick around and play with. And the question I want to ask is, how can we think rightly about suffering as Christians, as God's people? How do we interpret that suffering? How can we cope when suffering, and I mean real suffering, comes our way as faithful Christians? You know what I mean, when we lose our job, when we can't pay the bills, when uh, our marriage falls apart, when the diagnosis is the worst news possible, when the child gets sick and dies. I'm talking about that kind of suffering. And it might, might be that you're at the stage uh, uh, where you're kind of looking into Christian things at the moment, and it's just a, a kind of outstanding question in your mind. What, what does the Bible have to say about suffering as a, as a believer? Well, this is where I think Psalm 44 can really help us this morning. You may have noticed in the introduction, as, as Will read it, the, the bit at the top, that this psalm was written by uh, the sons of Korah. Now, they actually wrote a section of psalms, Psalms 42 to 49, and this one kind of comes in the middle. And the sons of Korah were actually temple musicians. I'm kind of looking at the band at the moment. Um, their job was to lead God's people in the worship of God. And they wrote this psalm to be sung by God's people as part of their worship of the Lord. And although it's designed to be sung as worship, you may have noticed, as it was read, that it has quite a different tone to many of our modern worship songs, doesn't it? It's distinctly lament. It is downbeat. It is full of sorrow. If it was a piece of music, it would definitely be in a minor key. Now, I know that some people think of evangelical Christians as uh, perhaps unkindly happy-clappy and how um, we kind of, uh, maybe this is an unfair caricature, but we kind of pl plaster on fake smiles and just pretend everything's okay when it's really not okay. And, well, this psalm, I think, shows us that it's okay not to be okay, often. Running through this psalm is brutal honesty and reality. There's absolutely nothing sugar-coated about this psalm. It portrays for us, I think, the genuine experience of a faithful Christian in this life as they live through a fallen world before we reach glory. It reminds us that we have to go through the wilderness years of this life 
before we reach the promised land. And I think the main idea is captured for us in verse 22. Let me just read it again for us. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Are these the words of God's enemies, the wicked? No, they're the words of the faithful, God's people. It's quite provocative language, isn't it, wouldn't you say? We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I think what it's saying is that the general pattern for the genuine Christian life in this fallen world is going to be one that is marked, punctuated by times of great suffering as God's people. Does that sound a bit extreme this morning? Perhaps it does. But then we remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said to the crowds and his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Take up your cross. That's, that's saying, take up, come and die. The cross was not a, a nice symbol. It was the means of death, wasn't it? It's the language of suffering now as we follow in the footsteps of the Master. Suffering now, but glory later. And I want to say that this isn't for the Christian elite, the great leaders, the super spiritual ones. This is basic Christianity. Of course, this isn't saying that Christians can't have times of great joy and happiness and thankfulness to God for great blessings in this life. But it is saying that we mustn't be surprised when times of great suffering come into our lives, even as followers of Christ. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of this quite often. Um, I kind of believe maybe it's a culture. The culture tells us life should be easy. It should be simple and it should be painless especially if I have God on my side the thing is I love comfort I love ease I don't like suffering and so I need to be reminded as a Christian that actually the general pattern of the Christian life is going to be suffering now but glory later I shouldn't expect life to be easy I should expect life to be hard But is there a note of hope in this verse? Well, I think there is. And it just comes in the first few words of verse 22. Do do look down. When it says, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. Did you notice that? Yet for your sake. I think it's saying that the suffering of God's people will never be in vain for us. It will never be random or just bad luck or have no purpose to it. It is saying that actually our suffering as believers will be under the sovereign hand of a good and loving God who promises to use our suffering for his sake. You could say for his glory and our joy. It's saying that every time a Christian suffers, every time a Christian suffers, even the worst kinds, it will be an opportunity to glorify God as we learn to depend on him more, as we 
learn to trust him more, as we are refined in our faith, as we realize that actually we have nothing in this world but Christ, that he is our treasure and he is enough. Yet for your sake. But what did the suffering feel like for God's people at the time? Well, I think we get a brutally honest account of what it felt like um, as the psalmist speaks on behalf of the people. And this is, um, I don't know, Steve, we're going to stick up a, a slide here. Um, and the first point, number one, the experience of suffering. First of all, they felt rejected. Just have a look at verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Not only rejected, but they felt defeated. Look at verse 10. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have taken spoil. Rejected, defeated, but also scattered. Look at verse 11. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. There is no strength when you are scattered. And they are humiliated. Look at verse 14. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Rejected, defeated, scattered, humiliated. It's not easy being a Christian, is it? But did you notice that even in the midst of the worst suffering, the psalmist does recognize that God is in control. Did you notice at the beginning of those verses we read, every time it says, but you made these things happen. I know it's hard to get our heads around this morning, but it does give us a wonderfully comforting truth that actually we, as believers, we are never outside the sovereign hands of a good and loving God. It's not as if um, there's a boxing match going on in heaven and God is in one corner and Satan is in the other and sometimes uh, Satan's winning and so we suffer and sometimes God is winning so we kind of have a, an easier time. It's not like that at all. God is always in control over our lives and that brings a unique comfort because we know that he is good, we know that he is just and we know that he's using it for his sake. Well, maybe you're thinking, well, perhaps they're suffering because they've been unfaithful to God. Maybe they've turned away from him. Maybe they deserve it in some way. But actually, when we read this psalm, we find that they haven't been unfaithful at all. Far from it. And this leads us to our second point um, on the screen. Not only the experience of suffering, but the confusion of suffering. Confusion, firstly, because they know of God's saving deeds in the past. Just look at verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. He's looking back, he says, I know what kind of God you are. I know what you did in the past. I know that you're a mighty saving God, how you made that promise to Abraham, how you rescued your people out of Egypt, out of slavery, how you took them through the Red Sea, how you conquered the promised land and brought them into their own land flowing with milk and honey. They knew God's character. They knew God's deeds. But it, they were saying, well, where, where are you now? Not only confusion because of God's saving deeds in the past, but confusion because of their present faithfulness 
their faithfulness in the present. Just have a look at verse 17. All this has come upon us, says the psalmist, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart was not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Now, I don't think the psalmist is being arrogant here. I think he's just being honest. I think he's speaking on behalf of the truly faithful of the Lord, and he's confused. He's bewildered, because he's thinking, well, isn't it the unfaithful who should suffer? Not the faithful. And yet here we are, the faithful, and we're suffering. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. You know, for us, maybe we feel like we've done the right thing as Christians. We've signed up to serve. We've turned away from sin. We've given sacrificially. We've agreed to leave the Bible study, though it was going to really cost us. We've not drifted away. We've been involved in the mission and outreach of the church. We've loved the Bible teaching. We've been faithful. And yet, he's broken us and covered us with the shadow of death. But isn't that the point of this psalm? Which is that even the most faithful Christians will suffer in this life before glory. Even the most faithful. That point is true, isn't it? If you just think of examples in the Bible, you don't have to go far. Think of Joseph, faithful in refusing to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And yet where did that end up? In jail forgotten for years. Think of Job. God said that there was no one like him in all the earth. He was faithful. And yet, he still lost his livelihood. He still lost all his children. Think of the Apostle Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, planting churches all over the uh, the Mediterranean. And yet, consider how much he suffered on those missionary journeys. Beaten, stoned, Ultimately, think of Jesus. Faithful, sinless, and yet he suffered more than any human being could have suffered for our sake. And I hope this can be of huge comfort to you if you're really suffering at the moment. And uh, maybe you don't sort of say it out loud, but at the back of your mind, you're kind of trying to figure out why is this happening to me? Is it because of something specific I've done? Something, some sin, some mistake? And I want us to say that actually this tells us that if even the most faithful suffer in this life, we cannot link any present suffering to a specific sin in our past. It is not God's punishment for your failure. Now the reason I can say that with confidence, is because when Jesus died, he took the punishment, all of it, for our sins. God is never punishing his people. It is true that we live in a fallen world and in general, uh, suffering came on the world because of sin, but we cannot as Christians link specific suffering to specific sins that we've done. And I think there's a great, great comfort in that.
You see, when suffering comes, we often feel confused, just like the psalmist has done. But we are to realize that even the most faithful Christians suffer. And doesn't that mean that... Well, what it means is that our hearts then do cry out to God in our despair. And that leads to our final point, the cry of suffering. Just to see uh, verse 23. You hear the anguish in these words. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Again, the psalmist is being brutally honest here, isn't he? About how he feels when they're suffering so much. It feels like God is sleeping. Makes you, makes you think of the, the disciples in the boat, in the storm. Remember, they, Jesus was sleeping in the boat. And they shake him awake. Why are you sleeping, Lord? Can you not see that we're perishing? It feels like he's hiding his face from them. It feels like he's forgotten all about them. And in a way, I was looking for the kind of, quite often in the Psalms you get a kind of turning point. Do you know where to go? But this, or but I remember this. But there isn't one here. There is no change in mood. The final anguish cry of God's people's hearts is found in the final verse, in verse 26. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. But did that anguish cry fall on deaf ears? No, because one day God did answer that cry. When he sent his son into the world, it was as if God was rising up from his throne to come down into our world full of suffering and pain to fulfill his promises to save his people from their sin and to take them to a world where there is no more sin and there is no more suffering forever. You see, when Jesus came and died on the cross, he was redeeming those who would trust in him, pay the price for their sins and put on display for all time the steadfast love of God for his people. And it's because of Christ and the gospel that Paul actually quotes our key verse, verse 22, in his letter to the Romans. I don't know if maybe you kind of had it ringing from memory of Romans, but if you've got a Bible, why not flip there with me now to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And verse 35. You see, Paul, because of Christ and the gospel, Paul quotes our verse from Psalm 44 at the kind of climax of this part of Romans. Let me read verse, from verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, and here's our verse, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see Paul's point? The genuine Christian experience in this life will be marked by suffering, tribulation, distress, persecution. It's as though we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And one day, when our lives in this world come to an end, and, and this world is done, all those who have trusted in Christ will stand with him in glory and proclaim these words, know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I just want to pull together some of the main applications that we've, we've seen. I kind of had them all scattered around, but I, I think there's going to be profit in just pulling them all together so that we kind of have something really to take away with us today. And uh, I've got them on the screen. In our suffering, how should we deal with it as Christians? Well, number one, in your suffering, don't be surprised. Remember, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The general pattern now, and it brings me no pleasure to say, the general pattern of our lives as Christians will be the same as Christ. Suffering now, glory later. And if you have lived life a bit, you will know that is true. In your suffering, number two, see it as an opportunity to glorify God. Remember those words, yet for your sake. See it as an opportunity to trust Christ more, to depend on him more, to make him your ultimate treasure. Number three, know that God is in control. It's that point, you have done this. We're never outside the good and loving hands of our Saviour God. It's not that Satan is winning in your life. Number four, don't think that God is punishing you for a specific sin. Remember the words of the psalm, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. Number five, in your suffering, cry out to God, turn to him. Remember the, the words at the end of our psalm, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This psalm models for us what relation, real relationship with God is like when the worst happens. And it is right to cry out to him. And uh, lastly, number six, remember the love of God. That it, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Um, I remember reading in, uh, in a Puritan book about the love of God that when we go through times of suffering, and it's always stayed with me, was the heading, do not think hard thoughts of your father. Do not think hard thoughts of your father. Because his love is never in doubt. And one day, this suffering will end, and glory will begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ma majesty of your word. Thank you that you understand us. Thank you for showing us that following Christ will mean suffering now. But we thank you that because of him and his death on the cross, it leads to glory later. Lord, help us to not be surprised. Help us to know you're in control. Help us to 
learn to trust you even more, to cry out to you, and to most of all remember your steadfast love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.